Uh, our panelists will just speak for you know about 10 minutes apiece, five to 10 minutes apiece, uh, and then open it up. And questions that you may have lingering from, from previous sessions, please feel free to, to, to bring those up again or to, make, to, to say things that you um, wanted to say. One other note, uh, Professor Sean Copeland, who is at Boston College, could not be with us today. For those of you who didn't hear, there was an incident of uh, racist vandalism at, at BC earlier in the week. Uh, and so she called me this week and said that, that she needed to be with her students uh, at BC. And so even in her absence, she teaches us. And uh, we, uh, uh, we are sorry not to have her here, but grateful that she is there with her students at BC. Um, for that reason, uh, Todney Thomas, who some of you saw speak Last time, uh, she had another appointment, but she's, because everyone still wants to hear from her, she's going to, if she can make it back, she'll come and join the roundtable and continue the conversation. Um, I don't think I need to, anyone who saw her knows how important and her, incisive her work is, and so we are grateful that, that if she can make it back, that she will join us and, and participate in the roundtable in Professor Copeland's absence. Let me just introduce this panel briefly and get out of the way so we can start hearing from them and start talking. Uh, our, our first speaker will be Professor Michelle Sanchez, uh, my colleague and the co-convener of this, of this uh, conference. She's an assistant professor of theology here at Harvard Divinity School. Her specialization is in the Protestant Reformation writ large, not only sort of 500 years ago, but also its reception and legacy today. Uh, she's a brilliant reader of, of John Calvin, and she has a work coming out next year from Cambridge, next year? Yeah, from Cambridge University Press called The Resignification of the World. Uh, professor Devin Singh is Assistant Professor of Religion at Dartmouth. He did his PhD at Yale uh, and has published on, on many diverse figures from Giorgio Angamben, uh, Carl Schmitt, Karl Barth, and Eusebius. Uh, he has a book coming out from Stanford University Press next year called Divine Currency, The Theological Power of Money in the West. Uh, and he regaled me with his current project last night over dinner about thinking about uh, the theological power of debt. Um, so all you students here, you, you, can, you know something about that, right? Uh, and, and we are very lucky to have Professor Singh here at, at HDS this year. He's a fellow at the Center for the Study of World Religions, so he's around um, uh, and is available, as I learned last night, for further conversations. Uh, professor Andre Willis is the Willard Prescott and Annie McClellan Smith Professor of History and Religion at Brown University. He took his PhD here at Harvard. Uh, his latest book is called uh, Towards a Humean True Religion, Genuine Theism, Moderate Hope, and Practical Morality from Penn State University Press. He has also published uh, really widely among a range of topics from jazz to hip hop to Dietrich Bonhoeffer to John Dewey. His current work is on Afrotheism and theology in the context of post-democracy. And then our, our final speaker this afternoon for this panel will be uh, Professor Cornell West, who is a professor of the practice of public philosophy and has a joint appointment here at the Divinity School and, and the Department of African and African American Studies. He, as you know, he needs no introduction. He took his PhD at Princeton and has taught here and at Yale and at Union Theological Seminary. And he is a noted public intellectual whose books have shaped and transformed the study of race, philosophy, and religion in this country and beyond. We are grateful for them to be here with us today. And I will step out of the way and let them, let them speak. Thank you, Matt. And you know, a lot of people have thanked us today, but I really want to like hold up a mirror and, and push that thanks back out to all of you, and especially to the speakers who are going to speak and the ones who have spoken already. Uh, we're grateful that you came and that you really brought your experience, your work, and your passion to this uh, conversation. Um, I think it's 
been really important for me and for others. Um, so I'm going to begin, I'm going to, before my official remarks start, I want to talk a little bit about this roundtable and why we have it as part of this conference on Christianity, race, and mass incarceration. And I think in some ways it really has to do with the fact that Matt Potts and I are the people who kind of organize this conference. And as you're probably already very well aware, we are not experts in this field in any sort of recognizable way, which is to say that I don't think anybody else who was organizing a conference on this topic would have called us to come speak at it. Um, so how did this come about? I'm not gonna tell you the whole story, but I do think it's notable that the, I think the, the birth moment of this conference happened one day when Matt and I ran into each other on the red line headed southbound. Now we have offices that are like pretty close to each other. We've known each other a long time, but it took us running into each other on the red line heading into Boston, going in different places to talk about a shared interest and concern we had about this topic. And then Matt said, you know, I've been thinking we have these grant opportunities and I was thinking of applying for it, do you want to help me out? And, you know, we had this moment of saying, are we the right persons to do this? But then there's the question of, you know, nobody else right now seems to be doing this and we have access to this. So if not us, who? If not now, when? So, I have also realized, and I, I think this is probably true for Matt, but I'll speak for myself, that along the way, thinking about this conference, researching who we should invite, um, has made me realize that my work is indeed <laughs> implicated deeply and is central to this. So part of when we first came up with this roundtable, it was asking a question for someone like me of, you know, how do I narrate my work, which is on the Protestant Reformations, which is on these arcane topics of theology, how do I connect that to this um, very deeply historical, sociological, political, uh, living concern um, that seems far away from that. But I think we've heard from last night's keynote and from the talk so far today, the extent to which theology is front and center. Theology runs all the way down in a topic like this. So we convened this roundtable in part to, with the awareness that we're having this conference at Harvard Divinity School, that many of our students will be asking similar questions that we've had to ask ourselves of how, how can I speak to this, how can, I, um, how can I let this inform my work, while my work might also have certain areas of accountability that seem to draw it far away from this concrete context. So we wanted to invite the, the wonderful intellectuals on this panel to help us think about that and to kind of narrate from your own two feet, from your own desk, from your own classroom, what it has meant to tie this together. So I'm on this panel because I work on the writing of Protestant reformer John Calvin and the legacy of his work. And Matt was actually the one who encouraged me to go ahead and say something today because we both knew that Calvin's ideas in particular are closely tied to toxic ideas and toxic realities about punishment and who deserves it. So we've heard a lot so far in this conference about obedience and disobedience, about benevolence, empathy, fear, and complicity. But recent scholarship on Christian theology, race, and mass incarceration has also focused on two other strands of theology that I've heard mentioned a little bit more tangentially, but they're kind of central to the literature. And one is atonement theology, and how particularly penal substitution theories of atonement have suggested that criminality must be punished in order to achieve some kind of satisfaction. And then there's theologies of chosenness, the way that ideas about election, a covenant community have funded an American exceptionalism that has been inextricably bound up with white supremacy from the very beginning and produced and reproduced notions of criminality that are likewise bound up with blackness and brownness in this country. 
And I think it might be safe to say that no other historical figure has been more implicated in the modern life of both of these theologies than Calvin. And this causes me to reflect long and hard about what it means to be the person here at HDS who asks young people, future pastors, congregants, and colleagues to keep on reading him. Hmm. And yet I am persuaded that such a reading of such a figure is important, not just for educating people about the past, but for learning how to do the actual work of reading. And I think this is bound up with the work of critique and the work of challenging racism at its subconscious and implicit core. Because our present remains infused with the theological logics of various kinds, but fundamentally, theology is also writing. It is argumentation. And argumentation presumes a material body and the material context of the reader. And if you read Calvin carefully and slowly, you'll find that he, and he's not alone in this, but you'll find that he too is aware of this. He asks you always to think about the uses of doctrines. Doctrines are not treated merely as representational claims about a cosmic structure. Theology is not a magical vehicle for your mind to get access to that cosmic structure and to have that authority. Doctrines are useful because of their distance from your body and your mind and your situation and because of the way they can challenge your given understanding of yourself, your identity, and your place in the world. So I'm going to say up front and throughout that reading with your body, front and center, ready to engage, ready to struggle with the text, rather than merely identify, it, identify with it, is a long road, and it is not a magic bullet to fix our problems, as if there could be such a thing. But inasmuch as the problems that we've named today are infused with theological logic, it's an important skill to remember and to hone. Last Sunday, if you happen to be in a church that follows the lectionary, you heard a reading from the book of Exodus, recounting that momentous occasion when the children of Israel, just freed from Egyptian bondage, grew tired of waiting for Moses. They combined their gold and their jewelry to fashion for themselves a golden calf to worship. And when God saw this, we're told that his anger burned and he moved to destroy the people that he had just saved. It's a remarkable account of how quickly human beings will embrace the false comforts of idolatry, seeking a deity that flatters our own wealth and our own accomplishments rather than one that asks us to trek through the desert, promising us that we can be something else, something unimaginable. But it's also a remarkable story because it's a story of turning and of rewriting. The scene harkens back to when Moses was turned from who he thought he was by a word from God that told him he would be something else. And now Moses draws from that moment of turning to audaciously remind God of what God had promised. And after Moses stands up to God, we're told that God turns, God repents. Hearing this story last Sunday, my church reminded me of this feature that I've long taken to be profound but underexplored element of John Calvin's writing, one that makes him worth rereading in spite of and maybe because of it all. And it's apparent when Calvin teaches the atonement in book two, chapter 16 of the Institutes. In particular, there's a passage where Calvin seems to assert a fearsome God who requires blood in order to achieve satisfaction for the crimes committed. I've seen that very language cited in accounts of why the Calvinist legacy has tended to reinforce and promote the logic of retributive justice that undergirds our prison system. 
Calvin does say that Christ intercedes for condemned humans by, quote, taking upon himself and suffering the punishment that, from God's righteous judgment, threatened all sinners, thereby purging with his blood those evils that render sinners hateful to God. That all seems pretty black and white. But a crack is opened up when you step back and take note of how Calvin has rhetorically situated that argument. You'll see that these kinds of statements appear in the subjunctive. He's contrasting two different kinds of stories about sin and atonement and punishment. And when it comes down to it, he prefers the more dramatic one, really, because it's more dramatic, because he thinks it's more startling to your assumptions. It's better suited to shake you up out of the complacency of your life and in so doing generate gratitude. And when he considers these two stories, he does so while openly addressing a question that feels like it could have come straight from contemporary critics of penal substitution. How, he asks, could God hate sinners while simultaneously giving his only begotten son to sinners as, quote, a pledge of divine love? According to Calvin, this is an obvious problem, and the obviousness <clears throat> means that certain expressions of divine wrath have, quote, been accommodated to our capacity that we may better understand how miserable and ruinous our condition is apart from Christ. But what's central, what affects this turning, what undermines the complacency is the pledge of divine love that hits the reader, whoever she is, wherever she is. Not only here, but across the institutes, I can see in Calvin's rhetoric, him trying to affect something like the phenomenon of watching God repent before Moses. Who has, who has called down God's own pledge of love to hold God accountable to the situation at hand. God seems to curse, but then God repents. Of course, Calvin will argue in several places that the phenomenon of God turning is really an effect of our own perception being challenged, of our own life being rewritten. The talk of wrath is a jolt. It's one that enables you to learn eventually that in Calvin's words, God has always anticipated us with divine mercy. He argues in a different place that it is our own fallen eyes that find evidence of God's curse. And encountering Christ as the pledge of divine love teaches us to see differently. So what I appreciate about Calvin and what I want to teach my students to look for is the ways that he addresses his arguments not to some floating mind not to mere sentiment, but to a real flesh and blood reader, one who is always embedded in life and mixed up in all kinds of warped systems, not of their own choosing. In that context, the arguments are designed to challenge the temptation to flatter one's own position, to prefer the safe flattery of a golden calf to the vulnerability of journeying through the desert in search of something better. In the Institute's theology doesn't promise cognitive access to some timeless representation of the order of things, that's what Calvin calls vain speculation, and it's the temptation to idolatry. Yet this is how the Institutes have often been read, not just by critics, but all the more by people who claim Calvin's lineage. And it's that kind of timeless, naturalized representation of a theological imaginary of election and punishment that keeps on reinforcing a carceral system that trades in the self-idolatry of collectively claimed racial or cultural chosenness. It takes the work and patience of close reading to appreciate the use that Calvin makes of doctrines, not just to make claims, but to turn the self, to challenge the self, to learn to see the self in the world under a new light. And I try to do that and teach it, not because I have any real vested interest in defending Calvin, and certainly not 
because I think this kind of reading will magically undo the catastrophes that have followed the Calvinist legacy. But if these ideas are going to keep roaming around to and fro in our mindscape, then I ought to do what I can to harness the imminent resources to use them for turning, to confront Calvin and make him repent, reminding him, in effect, of his own warnings against idolatry of self-flattering theology. And if theological teachings can be faithfully read as tools to affect the rewriting of a life, to turn one from perceiving the sign of the curse over oneself to the sign of election, then this might be seen as a critical resource for critiquing a system that justifies the punishment of others by claiming election for oneself. And equally importantly, this turning can work the other way around, to turn what is taken to be the sign of the cursed to the sign of the elect. If I'm going to keep asking people to read these texts in my classrooms, it is incumbent on me to cultivate the kind of classroom in which students are asked to be self-aware of their own posture of reading, that they can consider how these words land on their bodies and what their bodies do to them, how they might offer resources for rewriting, perhaps to affect one's own repentance, or perhaps to undergird the courage to stand up before a system that feels as big and powerful as God and call for repentance. Uh, yes, um, my name is Andre Willis. I teach at Brown University in the Religious Studies Department. Um, I work on, uh, I have two sort of strands that I think about in my intellectual life. The first is uh, Enlightenment Philosophies of Religion from uh, especially David Hume, but from Bentham all the way to Adam Smith. Um, and the second track is on African-American religious history and African-American critical thought. Um, so I'm, some of that may manifest in some strange ways here today. I want to first extend gratitude, of course, to Matthew Potts and Michelle Sanchez. They're very humble, but I know that it takes a lot of time and energy to put something like this together. And uh, I appreciate the conversations that they've crafted the kind of contours of the, the conversation with the invitations. And I've been at all the sessions and the lecture last night. And it's great, it seems to me, insight to bring the particular constellation of thinkers that they've brought together um, in this particular space for and on this topic. And I know that was a lot of detailed work, so thank you. I also want to say a word of appreciation to my fellow panelists, participants, and the attendees for your contributions and <clears throat> your presence. Most importantly, though, I have to acknowledge my longtime teacher, Professor Cornell West. And Professor West's riveting brilliance and masterful intellect um, are only surpassed by his extraordinary compassion and deep commitment to the quest for social justice. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I will tell you something you don't know. He has served as a wise guide for me since I was 18 years old <coughs> and uh, a sophomore at Yale College. 
came to his office at Yale Divinity School and asked him to read some materials with me in African-American philosophy. And since then, we've had a time. <laughs> but he has uh, given me such undivided attention and undeserved time that whenever I needed him, he was sort of you know, there for me. And I wanted to publicly acknowledge that. Um, because if it wasn't for, for Professor West and Professor Preston Williams, who was here last night, who was my advisor at Harvard Divinity School, I might have had a much more intense experience with the other side of the criminal legal system. Because it's that kind of presence, what Dr. West talks about as a being there kind of love in a book that I edited, um, that sustains and enables um, folks who have deep needs and contributes to them avoiding certain pitfalls and dynamics that this pervasive system can sort of trap you inside of. <clears throat> I think I, I'm kind of referring to a sense of rage. That's what I mean to be talking about. This is what bedevils me and continues to bedevil me, actually. Mm. Sense of rage, we haven't talked about that much. Mm. But it's a part of my own psyche that is linked to the traps of racial reasoning, which I've inherited from a tradition of natural sciences, which flourished in the Enlightenment. Mm. Right? David Hume himself, one of the <coughs> most noted racists, not only borrowed racial categories from natural scientists, but also suggested that racial hierarchies were uh, legitimated, legitimate. And he authorized a kind of white supremacist way of thinking about black folks very explicitly in a footnote, uh, a, an essay where he said, uh, the Negro well, is always inferior, has always been inferior. I'm getting it wrong, but it's something like, I'm apt to suspect that the Negro is and will always be inferior to the white race. It's a 1748 essay. So, particularly when you grapple with these Enlightenment texts and you face pervasive and persistent system of oppression, it's always looking to trap you, right? This criminal legal system trying to avoid it, sidestep it, becomes, um, it occupies your mind. You can't walk around without thinking about it. So how forms and systems of oppression work, right? They seem to be so all-encompassing and inescapable. But what they tend to do ultimately is to put us in a distorted relationship with ourselves. This is what I think systems of oppression do. That they get us out of sync, as it were. Generate a sense of self that's somewhat distorted. Leave us unable to um, reach what Howard Thurman might call a creative potential to love, or what Martin King might talk about as beloved community, right? Because we're not in proper sense 
of a relationship with the self. This is what these systems do. They estrange us from ourselves and communities by providing discourse, concepts, ideas that haunt the inner psyche and support the phantom narratives that drench our subconsciousness. Again, I'm making a move away from a lot of the papers and presentations here deliberately just to open up the dialogue and I'm gonna be respectful of my time. So it's that kind of interior haunting that constrains the capacity to love, what Howard Thurman's normative project, right? To ultimately love, he's building of course on a particular understanding of the disinherited in that 1949 text, Jesus and the Disinherited. But so much has been said, and there's so much more to say about mass incarceration and its related institutions. I like to refer to it, as you heard, as a criminal legal system. It's coercive violence, institutionalized dehumanization, systematic surveillance, and routinized yet cleverly shifting modes of trauma production disproportionately target and thrive off of those with the least resources among us, the poor, the disabled, those who are chemically dependent, those who are either perceived or may identify as gay or lesbian, in addition to transgendered folks and folks of color. Now there are ways in which we can think of the criminal legal system as constituted by four layers, police, you know, militarized, in the streets, kind of a first encounter with this sometimes fearful vigilantes who are authorized to use violence. Second layer, prosecutors and judges, we haven't talked a lot about them. State-supported co-conspirators that sustain the logic of a criminal legal system. Jails and halfway houses, that is temporary housing for the poor generally. Systems of probation and parole, organized and mandated surveillance of the poor, disproportionately black and brown, and so forth. But I want to put this kind of oppressive leviathan of mass incarceration in relief for a moment and focus on two tendencies that I think sit at the background, kind of a Wittgensteinian that set the stage, right, for the, the system itself, right? Um, but before I do that, um, I want to um, remind us the various ways that we're all prisoners. Mass media, military, industrial complex create a prison for us. That is, our efforts must be focused then on collectively awakening from a narrow consciousness that tries to force us to see, think, and act within a very limited range. What I mean by this is the systems that constrain us, the violence these systems persistently cosign and propagate, and the trauma we carry all shape how we think about organizing, how we operate in collectives and communities, how we construct our networks. That is, our historical and current relationship to all forms of violence creates limitations and obstacles for building social movements that can combat these, that can combat these structural forces. So two features I want to emphasize, and I'll be fast. The first is criminalization as dehumanization. Criminalization is dehumanization. And the second is power as domination. Power as domination. So my premise, though, is 
Oppressive systems like mass, mass incarceration shape the ways we think about violence and power. That is, no matter how healthy one's family is, one's community is, or we are personally, our ethical formation takes place in the midst of coercive violence and intrusive state surveillance. This sends us a message around how power and violence operate, and it impacts who we are and our visions of what we can imagine. Thus, public structures of violence and oppression imprison our interior worlds. Again, I know I'm making a shift from the important work that was in the last session, but I'm hoping we can talk about this or maybe it'll be clearer. So criminalization is dehumanization and power is domination. These are the kind of two features that I want to, to just quickly note. Criminalization is dehumanization. Of course, there are a number of ways we can link that to the Christian theological tradition around sin. Um, Professor Sanchez just, respond to, just, just described some of them vis-a-vis uh, -vis Calvin. But one of the interesting moments in uh, the last session was, for me, this way in which subjects who are caught up in, as police, right, in a system, we all have family who are both serving as police officers and caught in jails, right? Stuck in a system, don't know what to do. It was laid out in the last session where they're training them to speak with a kind of emotional um, awareness, use nonviolent speech, and to communicate with a kind of empathy, right? Well, they're just as trapped. We can't dehumanize them, right, for making an attempt to do better um, even though their job is bad and they're caught up in a system which they can't control. The same time, of course, the focus of the criminalization process and what it, how it dehumanizes is on the so-called perpetrator. Um, and that has a long uh, history discursively that I'll avoid talking about. But I just want to say it's not simply being put in jail that we have to think about. Right? It is the enforcing of criminal statutes themselves, which is the most intrusive and coercive exercise of domestic power by a state. Forcibly, forcibly preventing people from doing that which they want to do, forcibly preventing, uh, sorry, compelling people to do that which they do not wish to do, and wielding force in the attempt to compel or prevent are state activities that have extraordinary ramifications, right? And so the beginning of, let's say, the indignity of an arrest begins, sort of um, sets off this process of dehumanization. Imagine being arrested, the indignity of it, physical confrontation, deep discomfort, the intrusion, the scene that's crafted becomes a spectacle. You read your rights, right? I mean, I can go on and on about this. You get booked, right? Clothing's taken away, strip search, body cavity search, and there are all kinds of things going on there. No longer a human being. Then you have to try to afford a defense attorney. You probably don't have the capital. Now you're thrown over to a public defender who's overworked, underpaid, is gonna try, it's probably new on the job because there's a lot to turn over. They're gonna try to uh, plea you out. Another sense in which dehumanize. Now you 
maybe in jail, we could go on and on. Then after a criminal conviction, the encumbrances are so deep, there's really no way out. So you get a sense of you're no longer a human being, you're just used by a system, a cog in a system. Power is domination, I said, was going to be my next quick one. Sorry, I'm taking too long. Uh, one of the messages we're consistently given, both from a particular strand of our intellectual heritage and as a feature of our daily lives in the U.S., is that power is a form of domination. That is to say, we know this has long-standing merit in our philosophical legacies and our theological traditions and our conceptions of history. It's, it's in our families that power is a successful assertion of the will. Now, I'll turn to Thurman real quick just to say we could go to Jesus or Martin King, but I'll stay with Thurman to say that there's a way in which, and I'm going to talk about this very briefly as the kind of positive part of what I want to do. There's a way in which thinking of power in that way will not contribute to undermining the system. Because we have to have new ways of thinking about power. It's not just successful assertion of a collective will. And I'm going to end on this. So there were two concepts, remember? Um, power is domination, and criminalization is dehumanization. What I'm calling for then is transformative justice. Not restorative, transformative. Transformative justice begins with the premise that we must integrate our psycho-emotional well-being with our political commitments to justice. So we got to start there. That's the first move. Psycho-emotional well-being with our political commitment to justice. That is, there's no transformative justice without transformed people. That is, those who are internally resilient are the ones we need to guide our collective and our communities. This does not mean that these are folks who are quiet, these are folks who are docile, these are folks who are obedient. We heard obedient last night. Now, I wasn't, there's no binary for me between obedient and disobedient, so... I'm not sure if that was the claim last night, but y'all can explain that to me. Uh, at any rate, um, these are not docile folks, but it means that folk who are resilient, they can control themselves. They can decide in community when they're going to pursue the energy of resistance, which may sometimes be uh, physical, shall we say. So maybe I should end there because I've taken up too much time. But let me just... Let me just say one more thing. Uh, <laughs> in terms of transformative justice, and it's a transfiguration of power, right? That is, you can't meet power's domination with power as domination. You have to transfigure that power to respond to dominant power. And this is, of course, the legacy of Jesus. We see it in Thurman's call for uh, love and a number of other places. But thank you so much for listening. Well, let me add my word of thanks um, for the invitation to be part of this important conversation, and my thanks to all of you for being here and for your engagement. I want to begin with a few broad queries. <clears throat> Why do we assume that something that we call a crime requires punishment? Why do we conceive of punishment as compensation. 
And I should be clear, by we, I mean the collective societal imaginary of the West. I don't mean we here. We're all too woke here <laughs> for that, right? <clears throat> but what can it possibly mean that inflicting pain is a kind of repayment for deeds done? What I'm getting at is that there's an economy underneath. There's a fundamental notion of exchange and a calculus of values. And where does this economy come from? And how can these things be equated in our minds at the societal level? Furthermore, why do we assume that to be in debt is to be guilty? Why does severe indebtedness raise moral alarms? Why are these two realms conflated? I want us to make strange and call into question these supposedly commonsensical norms. Basically, we're like fish in water trying to describe what wet means. This is the air we breathe, right? My own work has been informed by, for lack of a better term, what I call theological genealogy. It's sort of one of the approaches that I use. And it's looking at the afterlives, the traces, the resonances, or the hauntings of theology within the institutions, practices, and conceptual systems that we inhabit today. Of course, this is a non-linear history. There's no easy one-to-one -one correspondence. Uh, but I've been led to explore the pre-modern and the ancient world, in particular in this, in this regard, and to look at the history of practices, techniques, and institutions as much as ideas. How does theology persist as repressed and yet hidden in plain sight? And part of this requires a certain understanding of secularization, right? That secularization is not simple subtraction. It's not a simple flattening of transcendence or uh, the sacred, but it involves transformations and transmutations. We, we see old questions answered in new ways, what's been called reoccupied positions. And these are implicit conceptual structures that continue to have impact because of the affective power associated with these theological worldviews, and also because of the ways they gesture toward questions of ultimate concern and horizons of the good that are often implicit. And so in the case of our conversation today, I wonder what implicit and enduring tropes, concepts, and images from Christianity in particular reinforce carcerality. What theologies inform the prison society? And these have been gestured to in a number of ways during our time together, right? My own research has focused on, among other things, understanding money. What on earth money is? where it comes from, something that, again, that we assume and, and think we understand, and yet it is something that is actually very strange, right, when you think about it for too long. And I've been led in my study of money <clears throat> to uh, it, questions about its origins, where it's come from, and these are practices that are shrouded in the midst of history that happen at the, the onset of human civilization. When we see the shift to from hunter-gatherer societies to the, the effort to establish living in community in some way, and communal organization. And we can't go much beyond this in terms of the historical record. 
scholars of the history of money point to what are called wear guild practices as one of the potential origins for understanding money, but also justice and legality. So wear guild speaks to this tendency to quantify insults and injuries and to think of ways to compensate for them. And these are introduced in human society to stave off these retributive cycles of vengeance that, that might destabilize society. Now already though, when these practices emerge on the historical record, there's economy there and humans have made strange equivalences. So what on earth might it mean to, to say and to think that, oh, my, my ox ran off and gored your son. Let me give you these three bags of barley to compensate. What sorts of conceptual mechanisms and practices need to be in place for that even to make sense? <clears throat> historians see wear guild practices as the origins of both money and legal codes, notions of justice. In order for that to appear though, we need standardization and we need enforcement. Enter sovereignty. So in the transition to the rise of these, these agrarian, ancient agrarian empires, in the introduction of hierarchy and centralization and resource allocation, these practices get transformed into what become the roots of money as well as legal codes. Sovereignty standardizes these practices across its territories as a way to manage its populations. The ancient study of money has been supported by the work of an early 20th century English civil servant, Alfred Mitchell Innes, who is little known but extremely influential. He was very influential on Keynes, for example, and other, other theorists of money. Innes shifted from his study of money, where he describes some of these wear guild practices, to a following study on the history of the prison and punishment. So already there, that affiliation is very interesting, right? To be led from money to study the history of the prison. There's some affinity there. So uh, about 70 or 80 years before Foucault's study, Innes, in, in one of his books, traced the evolution of notions of punishment and pain, at least in the Western imaginary. One of the things he observed is that when sovereignty enters the scene to mediate these communal encounters, there's significant alterations and transformations in how these encounters are perceived. As I mentioned, there's standardization, there's enforcement of quantification. And yet, sovereignty, sovereign power, comes to make that infraction or that crime or that, that insult now about itself. This is no longer just about a harm you've done to your neighbor. This is an offense to sovereignty. This is, an, this, is a, this is an offense to the honor of sovereign power. So what we see here are shifts in notions of obligation and debts. Who are you indebted to? Are you indebted to your neighbor or to your governing overlords? And I'll just throw this out, out there, but part of the lifeblood of sovereignty is displacing its debts onto the governed. Sovereignty lives through the management of debt. So we see that punishment now changes as well. Whereas beforehand, it was about compensation to the victim, restitution in some way, now it becomes about pain. 
and harm for the perpetrator. The victim's needs are sidelined. Now eventually we'll see that distinctions between civil and criminal law will, will evolve to deal with this, but for a broad part of history, this isn't the case. And so attention on the victim and restitution is sidelined to the more important now offense of offending the honor of the sovereign and the need to inflict pain and punishment on that offense. So there's a long history of historical memory in human civilization that ties economy and sovereignty together with punishment and pain. And we can't examine the question of the prison or incarceration without considering the models of sovereignty at work. So this need for compensation and payment and its conflation with pain and punishment gets standardized and regularized under forms of state rule, so much so that they become normalized and commonsensical to this day. We can barely think otherwise. And sadly, emerging Christianity was also unable to think otherwise. Despite resources for thinking otherwise that we see in aspects of preceding Jewish thought, as well as in some strands of so-called heterodox, early forms of Christianity, orthodoxy, the official lines of Christian thought that have been disseminated and enforced, appealed to some mechanism to justify salvation. So what I mean by that is, despite language of grace and forgiveness as central, God's welcome and embrace of humanity comes at a cost. An exchange, a payment, a sacrifice must be made. A transaction has to occur. Christ is compensation for humanity's sin. And so here I'm gesturing to what, are, what have been termed early ransom theories of atonement. These are the first formalized theories of salvation that I would argue underwrite all ensuing developments in Christian thought about soteriology, about salvation. There's an economy at work. Human sin is construed as debt, Christ is portrayed as the one who redeems or pays the debt. Forgiveness isn't free. Freedom has to be purchased. And one might ask, is this grace? So Christian thought validates and underwrites a worldview where an economy of compensation and retribution reigns supreme. Even God, the Lord of the cosmos, apparently respects debt relationships and offers Christ to settle the terms. So what hope can there be for debt-bound subjects to escape from the logic of debt if even God follows its rules? These early Christian theories of salvation make the image of the debt slave and debt slavery central and construe freedom from debt slavery as the main way to portray redemption. And of course, we can't interrogate mass incarceration without interrogating the history and logic of slavery. We know that slavery is integral to modernity. The modern project could not get off the ground without the encounter with the new world and the use of slave labor to extract resources and fuel, early capital accumulation. Slavery, modernity, and the rise of capitalism are historically co-implicated, this is clear. And we also know that Christianity did much to enforce the slave economy with language of slaves obeying masters and ideal disciples as being slaves for Christ, right? And of course, this came up in Professor, Professor Jennings' talk last night. But I think the specificity of debt slavery requires attention as well. 
According to these theories, humans are in debt slavery usually to the devil, and debt is construed as a sin and hence as guilt. So we see this conflation there of debt and moral, uh, moral iniquity. So then to be in debt slavery in the real world, in the material world, must also convey some form of moral failure. So by God respecting and following these debt relationships, what sorts of implicit valorization of debt economies does this offer? And what might it mean to examine the project of modernity as displacing societal and sovereign debt upon the slave? We know that slavery and the carcerality of the plantation act as the underside or supplement or foundation to modernization. And as, as we can recall, part of why the discovery of the new world was so revolutionary was this new access to land, gold, and other resources to fund the regimes of Europe and service their debts. Kingdoms were in debt and needed to pay their bills. Free labor and free resources provided this answer that catapulted Europe to global power. The debts of sovereignty were transferred onto the backs of slave labor and onto the actual land of the new world. Sovereignty survived through managing its debts. So how is this logic of creating debt slaves intrinsic to our modern order? How does the prison industrial complex, which is not merely a site of racialized punishment and pain, but a central site of debt creation and economic production, reveal the underside of modernity to be one of creating and managing its debt slaves? And how did the Christian imagination provide fuel for this? And I'd just like to offer as a closing query, can we imagine salvation without redemption? How can we imagine being saved without an economy of exchange and compensation? Again, I believe this is the undergirding logic to nearly all theories of salvation in Christian tradition. And this informs most assumptions about the goodness and value of punishment in society, punishment as redemptive suffering as purifying, as transformational and just. Prisons exist in part because of an underlying assumption that to be saved, to be changed, transformed or redeemed, payment must be made. Payment in actual money, but of course also in pain and time. And even for systems that no longer hold out hope for transforming the incarcerated into docile subjects, but see those that are imprisoned as lost, these systems are sustained by this governing logic that in the name of justice, punishment must be inflicted to balance out the scorecard, and that society, if not the incarcerated, will be redeemed and saved through this sight and scene of violence. And so I ask again, can we imagine salvation without redemption? Can we articulate a, a vision of what it means to be saved personally, communally, socially, politically, and cosmically, without the need to resort to a notion of punishment as paying back or of exchange for pain for the sake of making right. And this strikes me as one of the central tasks for those involved in mobilizing the Christian imagination for more life-giving forms of social transformation. Thank you. against the wishes of my grad advisor, um, it does strike me that um, there's some interesting insights about 
um, theology, um, the Christian tradition as it's articulated and practiced by African Americans in this country, um, and what I think are emergent theologies or emergent ontologies um, that may not be so beholden to the Christian tradition that might be productive for us to consider because of the time and the political moment um, that we're located in, because of the imaginations and community organizing um, and uh, commitments of women of color. And so um, for me, when I think about theology, I think about it being important in a space like this because theology questions about the very nature of God um, bring up fundamental questions about, um, about sort of divine benevolence and damnation, right? And uh, for those people who were uh, constructed as black and blackness being used as an alibi for enslavement, slavability, colonialism, sexual violence, rape, convict labor, um, the ongoing uh, minoritization um, of their descendants within uh, the new world and, and various forms of anti-blackness globally, thinking about the nature of God, right? Thinking about the nature of God's benevolence, thinking about ideas of damnation um, are very much fundamentally linked, I think, to the political um, positionalities of black people and prospects for um, their, their ability to be punished and, and prospects for their liberation. Um, of course, you know, there's no discussing this without acknowledging the great work done by um, black liberation theologians like Cone um, or the very uh, sort of in-depth um, genealogical excavations about the black prophetic tradition um, done by my colleague um, Brother West here um, and what it has and means for black people within black churches and, and beyond. Um, in my own sort of theological, um, I wouldn't even call it digging, just perusing, because um, it's, you know, oh, theology, it's interesting, I'll just read some books. Um, you know, I found um, uh, the work of um, theologians who have very much questioned and criticized the idea of redemptive suffering to be heartening and to be productive. Um, I'm thinking about um, Is God a White Racist um, by Gwilyn Jones, right, which um, very much criticize the idea of uh, the innate benevolence of God, right, when thinking about the relationship to God as God is imagined in relationship to the material conditions implied of black people. Um, I also think about Sisters in the Wilderness by Dolores Williams, right, which um, discusses the ways in which black women's forced surrogacy, their reproductive work around sort of stories and mythologies of chosenness, right, um, raise important questions about the very utility, right, or the very, uh, the very othering that's endemic to pro projects of chosenness, particularly around gender, but also um, around race. Um, and so um, if we can think about blackness as something that has served as a gloss for damnation, um, and sort of African-American theologians' contentions with that within the Christian tradition, right? Um, in particular, through a critique of sort of um, uh, divine benevolence. Um, I'd say with that as a critique of Christian notions of benevolence, which has pretty much been um, 
uh, a call of the morning, um, critiques of ideas of black redemptive suffering, right? That somehow black suffering will um, create a redemptive form, a transcendent moment. Um, what are we left with? What kinds of effective responses are black people left with? And I think that's what we're seeing happening right now within the field of black studies, right? Or we could talk about Kendrick Lamar, his contemplation of damnation, right? Um, uh, we can think about um, uh, the sort of ways in which Afro-pessimism is thinking about uh, the kinds of effective, effective positionalities, politics, intellectual enterprises um, that uh, occur when people contemplate the very weight, tropic, historical weight of narratives of black damnation and what it means for black people's position in their very bodies. We could also think about Joseph Winter's call for um, a kind of melancholy, right, as something situated between an optimism uh, and, and, and a pessimism, right, that calls for a kind of reflective imminence, right, um, a call to not respond effectively um, or emotionally, but to sit with the complexity um, of the sort of black experience, right, and he um, doesn't rely on the work of some of our traditional theologians, but the work of Baldwin, um, the work of Toni Morrison. Um, I'd like to um, sort of ask us to consider some of the emergent theologies, emergent ontologies that um, I think are coming out in this moment that in particular are being authored, imagined, written by black women um, in this moment. Um, and, and, and I set this up as a kind of uh, taking place in context or through lexicons that are not always beholden to the Christian tradition, right? That are not always beholden to the theological construct um, of the black church, right? Um, that uh, sometimes are coming out of context in which we see black women returning to um, sites of practicing neo-African religions, right? We are in a context when African Americans are leaving um, the Christian tradition and that needs to be acknowledged. And so what kinds of ontologies um, are being potentially authored um, in the wake um, to deal um, with damnation, black damnation, and what it looks like in this iteration of the carceral state. So I, I think of four things, right? Um, uh, the first being the work done by um, the queer black women who organize Black Lives Matter. Um, the ways in which um, Black Lives Matter, um, a focus on Black Life Matter, um, focuses on the materialization of blackness, the materiality of blackness, right? Um, of black flesh, right? As a site of the sacred as a call for the eminent, as the site for an eminent politics that won't wait for some great transcendent moment, right? And what that means, right? In terms of how we understand uh, a politics that's not grounded necessarily uh, in a hermeneutics of salvation, right? Certainly it's grounded, I think, in, and falls upon a genealogy of black liberation, right? That's connected to the black prophetic tradition, but not salvation, right? Um, I also think about the work being done that has been done by scholars like Sylvia Winter and Catherine McKittrick, um, who have created Afro-diasporic post-colonial feminist humanisms that um, create new grammars um, of imagining humanity, right? Black women's humanity, black folks' humanity in ways that can provincialize and move beyond uh, the humanistic discourses of the Enlightenment, right? So we have, um, as black people, right, our own humanisms, our own genealogies of humanism um, that are being produced and contemplated, right, that um, can also move beyond 
um, ideas of salvation and damnation. And to the extent that damnation is invoked, the demonic is understood as counter-hegemonic. The demonic is understood as counter-hegemonic, right? Um, it is not understood as something to be fled, right? I think about Tony Penn's discussion about signs and sin, right, as focusing on the sensuality of black flesh, right? in a way that is not beholden to centuries-old scripts about blackness as damnation, that people are moving beyond a kind of racial calculus of salvation. And finally, I'd like to think about what I um, discussed a little bit earlier, for those of you who weren't here, um, a kind of theology of Esau Garner, right? Or an ontology of Esau Garner, the widow of Eric Garner, who uh, refused. Um, the apology from a police officer who killed her husband, who refused to participate in sort of the moralized, ritual, effective theater of racial reconciliation politics, right? Um, as, as someone who calls for a different kind of reckoning of right relationship, a relationship that is grounded in a literal, symbolic, and material equality, and refuses symbolic offerings of relationship or apology or reconciliation that do not take place upon actual democratic egalitarian terrain, right? So a politics of refusal, right? Um, an insistence upon um, a right relationship, right? And a right relationship that may not rewrite history, um, but a calling to of what interracial intersubjectivity should and could be, right? That moves beyond I think uh, a more familiar idea of apology, redemption, and salvation, right? That focuses on black eminence and wholeness. So those are just my scribbled remarks. I just, I would like us to think about, not as a theologian, but I'd like us to think about, think about theology a bit more expansively um, in the sense that, and, and, and I, Penn is very important to me as someone who understands himself as sort of a black humanist theologian. Um, that there are theologies and ontologies that are being made that, of course, the black church has been the quintessential social institution of black life, but these thinkings and renderings um, aren't necessarily found within those walls at all times, right? And they can push the conversation beyond a limited grammar, right? Um, that sometimes Christianity can take us to great heights of imagination, but sometimes it can lock us into binaries and polar polarities um, and dualities um, that when you're black <laughs> normally puts you on the underside, right? So these are, these are ontologies of the otherwise that I think we should also consider in a conversation about theology in the 21st century in this sort of moment within the carceral state. I think we have another example of the high quality discourse here at Harvard Divinity School. I'm very blessed to be here. I want to salute Brother Matthew, I want to salute Sister Michelle, and I'm so delighted to be a part of this panel. Brother Andre, Sister Tarden, and Brother Devin have given us some very, very rich formulations. Now, as you recall, the title of this session is Theology and Humanity, Theologos, God Talk and humanities, and humando from the Latin, which means burial and burying. So we're talking about forms of death, voices of the dead, 
not just the physically dead, but the living dead, mm -hmm. or the socially dead, the enslaved, or the civically dead, the Jim Crow and the Jane Crow, or the psychically dead, those who've given up on themselves and engaged in self-violation and self-flagellation or forms of addiction in order to stay titillated in the face of losing their souls for a moment, or the spiritually dead. Mm -hmm. So that anytime we talk about incarceration, there's an echo of Franz Kafka's great sentence, all of us wrestling with the prison sentence in time and space. No one gets out of that prison alive. Now, there's a wonderful scholar at the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton. His name starts with an F. I think it's Fasten or Fallen. You know, he writes on punishment. I don't know if you all know his work, but he's worth, he's worth looking at very closely because he's very upset with the precedence that's been set by H.L.A. Uh, Hart. H.L.A. Hart was one of the great legal theorists in the middle part of the 20th century. He gave a presidential address in 1959 at the Aristotelian Proceedings called the Pergamena on thinking about punishment. And he defined it legalistically as the imposition of suffering. But we know there's a variety of different kinds of punishment. There's such a thing as social punishment. A lot of people are socially punished before they even get incarcerated. A lot of people are economically punished before they get incarcerated. To be trans in America is to be ontologically punished. To be trans is to be punished. To be gay, to be lesbian, to be black. I come from black people who are dealing with variety of forms of punishment. We had mass enslavement, but it wasn't mass incarceration because they needed our labor. Now that they don't need all of our labor, then a significant slice of us can be incarcerated while the rest of us are outside dealing with the prison sentence in time and space, reflecting on the incarcerated. Now, it's getting late, and I believe in lifting every voice, not just mine. That's the anthem of my people. <laughs> So I'm going to be very brief. I want to deal with what Brother Andre ended at the end, transformative justice. What does it mean to engage in transfigurations of power and really respond in part to that very profound uh, question at the very end of Brother Devin's presentation. Can you talk about salvation without punishment? Can there be a conception of God of love and justice as opposed to a God of wrath and revenge? Whitehead wrestles with this question in a profound way. There is a tradition of the, of the community from which I come, the Martin Kings and John Coltrane's and Fannie Lou Hamer's, who talk very much about redemption and salvation without talking about them engaging in forms of punishment or even a deity. When Emma Till's mother says in the face of her baby, I don't have a minute to hate, I'll pursue justice for the rest of my life. She wasn't talking about counter-punishment against those who had punished her son, you see. And she wasn't positing a God at that moment, you see. She was talking about how do we sustain a conception of remembrance, love as remembrance, and reverence, something beyond the idols of the day, love as reverence, and resistance and redemption, but holding at arm's length any claims about somehow there's got to be a balancing. Mm -hmm. 
That's the difference between the conception of justice with the blind eyes and the balance versus justice as a force that goes through our hearts, minds, and souls in order to bear witness to a love that makes absolutely no sense in a world characterized by vast coldness and cruelty and domination and exploitation. Most of the history of our species is the history of domination, exploitation, hatred, envy, and revenge. How do you break the cycle? That's what Martin King, that's what Fannie Lou Hamer, that's what so many others, Whitehead and the others, are wrestling with. And that's what we are still wrestling with in this neo-fascist moment in which mendacity has been normalized and criminality has been naturalized and the crimes against humanity are not solely those that we see in that vicious mass incarceration regime. The crimes against humanity can be seen in one out of two of black and brown children living in poverty in the richest nation in the history of the world. The crimes of humanity can be seen with the drone strikes and those precious innocent folk who are killed. The crimes against humanity have something to do with Wall Street greed and the fact that workers are wrestling with stagnating wages. Those are not incarceration issues, but they're inseparable from the relation of legal punishment, social punishment, economic punishment, ontological punishment. How do we respond with a love? I am old school. <laughs> I'm going down on the love ship. <laughs> but it's not love in the abstract. It's a love of truth and the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak anybody's suffering. It's a love of beauty. I love that line in Whitehead, the teleological end, the name of the universe is a production of beauty. Mm. That's taking it too far, but I like the insight. I want love of truth, I want love of beauty, I want love of goodness. And as a prophetic, revolutionary Christian, I want love of a certain kind of holy. Do we have what it takes? Calvin has an insight. It looks as if we are rather wretched, deprived, and depraved species, given where we are, with ecological catastrophe, nuclear catastrophe, economic, moral, and spiritual catastrophes. Calvin, I'm so glad Calvin is still in the mix, <laughs> even though he's to be criticized like everybody else, interrogated like everybody else. Let me stop. We can open it up for questions. Okay. There were a lot of hands that we had to pass by. There's one over there. Feel free to bring it all into the space. Um, my question is to bring forward a, a question that was raised in an earlier panel about the, the work of affective labor and thinking about the concept of labor alongside of the concept of money and the economic systems of whether that's 
the rise of capitalism or new technologies of neoliberalism, what that has to say about the theological imagination of our moment, I guess. Um, how we can't, the ways in which we can talk about money and debt as also linked to certain forms of recognized labor. That's, I didn't formulate that as a question, but just something to put out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> testing, testing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there's, there's, of course, ways in which notions of hope and eschatology get conflated with the so-called cruel optimism of neoliberalism, right? It's leaning forward. Uh, and the ways in which our own hopes and dreams are colonized and disciplined by, by this order. And so that, that raises the question of can we distinguish modes of hope that can be critical hope, right? Hope that can provide distance and authentic horizons of transformation. I think that's a very live and active conversation right now. Absolutely. It's a, it's a challenge when I, I don't have specific solutions. Um, but I'm very, I very much feel the force of that question. I think that's, that's something that we continue to wrestle with. And I might add that, um, I, I was talking about this a little bit last night, and I've talked about this for a long time. Uh, it's one of these theological doctrines that has had a complicated life, which is salvation by faith and not works. And I find that in the same way we talk about love in the concrete, there's a way that we need to start talking about faith in the concrete, where faith is not just, you know, I believe the right stuff, and that's what matters. Faith is, and this, is, this goes back to the obedience-disobedience kind of dichotomy too. Like what does it mean to not succumb to the obedience-disobedience dichotomy, but rather respond to another kind of obedience that comes from another place? What does it mean to look at the workforce with faith that does not buy the sort of indexing of work to debt? Um, I think that's worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. Just to add one thing that I was reminded of, um, Brother West's invocation of Kafka on the notion of the prison sentence in time and space. Mm. The reason that interest exists is because we are dying. The reason why one would want to charge for the use of my money uh, is because my time, I, I fear death. It's this notion of the limits and this being, being in existence toward death that then propels yeah. dead economies. Um, so what might it mean to interrogate that sense of, of being imprisoned in time and space and, uh, and to interrogate notions of, of this anxiety of, of the scarcity of, scarcity of my, my lifespan on Earth that might actually undermine debt economies? I think it's very important to draw a distinction between obedience and surrender. You see, surrender is love talk, obedience is duty talk. Said even my brother last night and all of his marvelous insights that when you fall in love, you're not obedient to anything. You surrender into something bigger than you and you're getting in trouble, but that's all right. You still got a smile on your face. <laughs> when you surrender to God, it's a certain kind of Christian like myself. I'm not obedient because it's a duty. It's because I'm, it's kenosis. I'm emptying myself in order to allow a love come through me that makes absolutely no sense in the eyes of the world, and I'm glad about it because I'm in the world but not of it. So I see a lot of hands, so I think maybe we should do what we did in the last panel and take kind of three questions. Let's start over here and then. 
We are being recorded. Thanks. What, Dr. Singh, your notion that uh, grace requires a sacrifice, um, absolutely, in terms of the Christian theology. And I'm working with the works of Toni Morrison and August Wilson, where they both just turn that, they, they, just, they do not agree with that at all. And in fact, Toni Morrison says, the only grace you can have is the grace that you can imagine. Now, that's not a grace that's just in your head, but that imagination is a call to creation, a call to a new kind of, if you want to call it, biblical or sacred creation here on Earth. And so that's how I said, so she, so she takes that apart already. So that whole debt aspect is no longer there. Uh, and I think August Wilson does the same thing, especially in Joe Turner's Coming and Gone. He does the same thing of sort of saying, no, uh, Christ did not die for me. I will, I, I will save myself. You know, and so they, they disrupt that and come up with a new kind of theology, if you want to call it that, um, that's very much rooted in the experiences of black people. Thank you all. Uh, this question is for Devin. There's just curiosity, your um, discussion of debt and uh, theological aspects of debt and the state reminded me of uh, David Graeber's work and debt the first 5,000 years. And I was just curious if that was part of your research or if you were in conversation with him. Answer that real Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation so far. Um, my question is um, primarily for Dr. Thomas. Um, I really appreciated your comments on kind of this posture of unapology and this politics of apology, um, and was wondering if you could speak more to kind of the role of the subject or subjectivity in that, because uh, it seemed like this, this white apology kind of exists in the middle voice, that it's a, an apology for myself, apology for oneself rather than for the other, and how this, it seems like it's kind of a, a white denial of, of the black subject. So I'm wondering if you could uh, expand on that. Thank you. Do you want to, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, thank you for your question. I mean, there's sort of two things that come to mind. Um, one is um, I've been doing a lot of reading about neoliberalism and um, the kinds of um, subjectivity that neoliberalism produces, like a kind of hyper-individualism um, an entrepreneurial self, right? Uh, entrepreneurial self that's always in, the, in this project of self-making, um, uh, re revision. Um, so there's sometimes once I hear ideas of hope, I'm like, oh, that can be appropriated by this like neoliberal entrepreneurial selfhood. The other thing is is that because this sort of neoliberalism produces this kind of subjectivity, and, and this is not just neoliberalism. There's the Christian individual self, the product, you know, it, you know, it has a genealogy. Um, is that um, discussions of affect, right, and politics of affect focus a lot on individuals or interpersonal levels of, uh, of communion, right? Um, and so, um, you know, when things sort of, I, I consider it a kind of devolve, like a devolution, right, a, a focus on what the problems with the world is that people don't talk right, people don't know how to talk anymore, right, um, is that it takes um, attention away from broader infrastructures of power, right, and anti-blackness and white supremacy. Um, 
I also think something happens when we're talking about the apology, right? Or we're talking about forgiveness, or we're talking about reconciliation, right? That these are, these are not things that I'm against, right? These are things that I actually respect as processes, right? Um, and we have these sort of shorthand scripts about how they're supposed to be done, right? Someone expresses an apology, right? We have no metric for measuring someone's sincerity and expressing apology, especially when, oh, I do something that is, I consider wrong, or I do something that could be read by someone as wrong, so let me apologize so I can retain some sense of moral capital, right? And then it is the, sort of the, the person who receives the apology is then given the burden or the, the burden of expectation right, to accept it, right, and on top of accepting the apology and fielding the apology, forgiving, right. Um, I, I am, I mean, I'm co-writing a piece with a colleague about the problematic nature of that because that is an affective form of labor, right, that, that there's actually something about not extending the apology because I think apologies are quick. I don't think there's soul searching and like humility and, and, and apologies aren't followed by thoughtful aspects or our uh, requests for reparation. I think people are like, oh, I'm sorry. And then I have to search in myself, well, I'm supposed to forgive you, but what if I don't want to forgive you, right? And then after I forgive you, I have this obligation to, to forget the thing or to move forward or to what, what if I don't actually want to do that, right? And what are the kinds of moral, uh, you know, uh, capital I lose if I choose to not follow into that script? So it becomes this affective work for people who were on the other side of racist violence, right? That they're supposed to do and perform this sort of script, right? And it's not understood as labor. It's understood, I'm giving you this thing, right? I'm a white person humbling myself and asking for your apology, for, for your forgiveness. Like you should, you should, you know, it's this weird kind of calculus that I think is um, very troubling um, and, and very problematic, right? Um, all the more so when we have cases like Dylan Roof, who never asked for forgiveness, right? Who never asked for forgiveness, right? Or, or thinking about this, the, the plurality of ethical and moral possibilities that are available, that not even that are available, that actually every day, like I do research with black church folk, like everybody don't think Dylan Roof should have been forgiven, right? Or when people talk about forgiveness, they have all these other things, well, I do research on a church burning that happened in my hometown. People are like, I forgive the person who did it, but like, let me tell you what I would tell him, right? Mm -hmm. That's forgiveness with accountability. That's an accounting. That's right. And, and, mm -hmm. and that's, that whole process gets shorthanded with this kind of like empathy affect. It's quick, it's fast, it's between two people, it's short, it's this quick turnover, just like the capitalist speculation of neoliberalism, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. So yeah, I think there are many pieces to that that whole thing that I find sort of problematic, um, but mostly about it being individual, it relating to neoliberal economies. There's a great book called Street Therapist that talks about the sort of um, uh, neoliberalism race and affect that, that, that sort of talk about that. Um, and I think there are histories of that in Christianity, Christian ideas about reconciliation. And I think sometimes people shorthanding right, Christian theologies about reconciliation and forgiveness, right? Like within this theological canon, reconciliation is actually a very complex process, but not, not now. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it gets my goat, man. I'm trying to say, I don't, obviously I have a problem with it, you know? I, I think, and I also think that this relates to neoliberalism, and I think um, Naomi mentioned this, but sort of this psychotherapeutic 
approach to affect too that's embedded that like you can heal if you forgive right that forgiveness is the quickest way to healing right as a sort of cognitive individual process versus thinking of healing as relational healing as collective you know my colleague Jonathan Walton says we're always talking about this but what about healing and like you know growing up in Sweetwater Tennessee there's healing there right what about the love in your grandma's corn you know that, that, that healing is something that just happens transactionally between this apology and forgiveness versus mm. what about collective healing, right? What about black people's collective healing amongst themselves, right? What about white people's healing from white supremacy and what it has done and does to them, right? And why that is a process that should not be shorthanded. Mm-hmm. Why people are confu- like confused, mm-hmm. they're wounded, they're, you know, um, so we miss all these opportunities, actually, for healing when we look at it transactionally in terms of this little moral script of apology. In fact, just to add to Professor Thomas's profound formulation, there's an essay by Maisha Cherry called White Request, Black Forgiveness. In mm. the way in which the immediate request from white brothers and sisters is a sign that they're not ready for serious healing yet. Mm. It's a sign of denial once again, of the catastrophe of white supremacy. It's a, it's a sign of aversion. Mm-hmm. It's that neoliberal conception of <clears throat> transaction, market relation, mm-hmm. moving on after you caught hell and I'm still doing well. Comment on um, restorative justice or transformative justice and that as a way of replacing sovereignty. You get sovereignty? You get sovereignty. You want to take more though, right? Two more. Related uh, for Professor Willis, I suppose, and anyone else kind of dangled the carrot with the transformative justice, how it marriage it marries psycho-emotional wellness and social political justice. So I'm wondering if you could just speak more to that as, you know, the, the last bit you gave kind of left me wanting more. Mm-hmm. And secondly, if, if, if others could comment more on just the, the, on the role of theology for transformative justice, especially working theologies that are born out of churches and in places where people gather uh, regularly. Um, and similarly, I was, I was wondering if we could um, <coughs> discuss the apparent dichotomy between rage and love and this role that we see in forgiveness. I think a lot of the times we view love and rage as antithetical and uh, view forgiveness as we have to give up or let go of this rage or anger that we have that drives us on a regular day, um, at least myself. Um, So I was wondering if we could kind of situate that within Protestant theology more generally. And um, yeah, that's kind of the question. Thanks. I'll try to address that one first. Um, Thanks, I appreciate um, appreciate your your thinking on this. uh, love, rage, and forgiveness, right? So you, you don't like the what you hear is a kind of binary, right? 
Yeah. I get that. <laughs> um, I mean, the way, the way I understand the force of the question is linked to this thing about forgiveness. Now, I tend to be old school and disagree with my colleagues about forgiveness, right? For me, I speak just personally and from communities I know. I, I don't do this theoretically, but, you know, my aim is to grow in wisdom and learn how to love better. And that, for me, has meant to really work hard in the process of forgiveness. I don't have a, the criticism of anyone else forgiving someone else based on a request. I don't, I don't know how to think about that. All I can do is think about my own lack of development and trying to, you know, love better. And I know these things have gotten in my way, so I just speak personally. Uh, so for me, I've, I can feel, uh, I, I don't have a binary between love and rage, but for me they're mixed up in ways that I can tell when, when one is delimiting me. Right, so I, I try to decipher that and sort of be a model of, um, of, of a compassion that is in touch with the rage that is um, controllable, right? So we always talk about channeling rage and you know, Professor West has a marvelous work on uh, Malcolm which talks about how Elijah Muhammad channeled the rage in the nation of Islam, right? And, and so that's the kind of, the, the, if, if there's a, if there's a there doesn't have to be a binary for that to still be, for one to make that claim, right? Um, I don't know if I'm getting at what you're interested in, but, but I know that in the other one was sort of linked transformative justice around um, sovereignty, right? <coughs> so yeah, I mean, so the transformative justice thing comes for me from a certain kind of anarchist um, legacy. I'm talking about communities and collectives who fight conceptions of sovereignty which are not grounded in their own conception of what should be, uh, what behaviors are morally problematic. So my call for transformative justice is a way that communities and collectives can come together and decide. This is hard work, this is not, I mean there'll be like, there's 20 more pages on this, right? Um, and decide, you know, how to hold people accountable. What, um, what are the behaviors that um, close down that community for the possibilities of transformation and those kinds of things. So, uh, did I, I, now still there's one more, right? And, and so, tell me, tell me again, because I have a bad memory, man. <laughs> tell me again what, the, what the, the, the thrust of the question was. Well, I, I was fascinated on how you mentioned that we have to link our psycho-emotional wellness yeah. to what the social justice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Transformative justice, which I think we kind of take an either-or approach, and I hear you saying it should be both and. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm just speaking from my own very limited experience in communities that are trying to collectivize in ways that are transformative and progressive, right? That there's a way in which um, there's a kind of, uh, sort of reckoning with, like, how can we do transformative work? Well, you know, maybe we're not ready because, you know, we're grappling with concepts, ideas, feelings, right, that have been shaped by oppressive systems of violence and systematic um, um, coercion, right? Um, and and we, we have to develop the tools to become transformative individuals so that we can transform, uh, transformative individuals in transformative communities so that we can transform systems. So there's a lot more to say about that, but again, I want to be thoughtful about time, sorry. Just really briefly on, on the matter of sovereignty, I mean, certainly transformative justice will be threatening to sovereignty since sovereignty relies on a certain type of predictability, standardization, cataloging, 
uh, a certain kind of stasis, right? And so transform, transformation by definition, and it makes sense that this is coming for you out of anarchist contexts, which you know, reject sort of these, these notions of sovereignty. I think also a challenge, though, is that if sovereignty so, is sort of the, the pole of stasis, which you know, we can also debate that, neoliberalism is the, is, the, is the pole of fluidity, right? That fills the cracks of sovereignty. And so there is always the risk of our moments of moves toward, toward protest and toward transformation being co-opted, uh, redefined, and branded um, by, by the neoliberal response. So, so it's, there, there's a challenge there in terms of what, you know, it's not simply just change for the sake of change, or, you know, it, and it requires imagination. And our imaginations have been colonized by, right. by the right. system, right? right? And so what does it mean to think otherwise? Right. And can we, can we see other horizons? And to put in one uh, more little reference to last night's talk, uh, Will, uh, sorry, <laughs> last night's talk with Willie Jennings, um, I, I really appreciated the emphasis on entering places in order to learn how to become that new kind of person, the new kind of person who can bring restorative justice. Um, putting yourself in a place where you have to love people who are not like you, where you're alongside people, you have to learn to affirm their existence in the deepest possible way is, is crucially important here. And I, I see churches as an apparatus where that they exist and that can happen. People are already next to each other in churches. There's a long history of learning how to love in church. And churches are not the only place, but kind of we don't need to reinvent the wheel fully to, to make this happen. We need to look at the places where we meet and look at that encounter as the starting point. I'm just going to add that anytime we invoke these notions of sovereign or church or mosque or synagogue or university, uh, we have to historicize, contextualize, and pluralize so that sovereign is, is not a homogeneous thing. There's dissent within sovereign. That's one of the gifts of teaching at Harvard. You got a ruling class institution that allows for voices to tell the truth about the underside of the ruling class. Now, if we start winning, that's a different thing. Oh, that's a different thing. But that's very important. I mean, that's one of the great contributions of liberalism vis-a-vis -vis the monarchs. So the, but the same is true in churches, same is true in mosques, same is true in all of these things. So even when we invoke these notions, it's heterogeneous, there's, there's variety, there's diversity, there's contestation, there's conflict all the way down in each context. That's why you can be part of a synagogue and the dominant orientation going one way and you going with Rabbi Hesher. But you're still part of that community. Or Dorothy Day is in Catholic church. They're going one way, the Pope's going one way, she's going somewhere else, but she's still Catholic. So it's just important to, to say that because that's one of the ways in which we understand the dynamism that sustains whatever hope we can have in such a bleak moment that we live in.